0: Good morning. Very glad to be with you guys here on the east end, as Mark told me about. Um, My first time here, so I'm very, very glad to be here with you this morning. And our passage this morning comes from Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11, where Paul the Apostle, he's writing a letter to the church in Philippi, and he's giving them an update on his current situation. And his current situation is that he's sitting in the midst of a jail cell, suffering terribly. So follow along with me as I read. You can find it on page 981 of your, of your Pew Bibles or follow along directly in your bulletin. This is God's word. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Amen. So, we're going to be looking this morning at what the Bible says about joy. And so, as I was preparing this week to preach, here in the Hamptons, here in the East End, about joy, I couldn't help but continue to check on weather.com what the weather was going to be like this weekend. (laughs) Because, you know, I don't get to spend a lot of time out here. It's beautiful out here. And who wants a rainy and cold weekend here in the Hamptons? Who wants a rainy and cold weekend anywhere? And I noticed that how I was starting to feel in my mood and my happiness was inversely correlated to the percent chance of rain and thunderstorms this week. And so I spent this week about 63% happy for Saturday and about 98% excited about today. And the weatherman was right. And it's funny, and I, and I couldn't help but laugh at myself as well because I realized just how, how shallow, as I'm preparing this message about joy, how shallow my own view of joy really was. Because I was starting to seek joy in the gifts instead of the giver of the gifts. And that made my joy completely fleeting, completely temporary, and absolutely based on just circumstances. But the Christian view of joy, what the Bible has to say about joy, is a true and lasting eternal joy that can never be taken away. And when you start to see what the Bible starts to say about joy, and the, uh, about joy for the Christian, it's as if joy is the birthright of the Christian. It's as if we're expected to rejoice no matter what, because it's a distinctive mark of the Christian. That's why in Philippians 4, 4, just a few verses from our passage, Paul, he commands the church in Philippi to rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice and that is a commandment that he gives to all Christians in the Church of Philippi. Well, we all know that that's a lot easier said than done. Because life is hard. There's suffering, there's pain in this world. We just prayed for our country and the needs of our people. There are unmet expectations everywhere. And our circumstances are constantly changing. Prior to working in uh, ministry, Mark gave a little bit of a background. I'm at Redeemer Presbyterian Church downtown. But prior to being at Redeemer, um, I studied finance at NYU in the city in hopes of working on Wall Street and achieving this great American dream that my parents had for me. That was the goal of my life. That was the goal that they had for me. And you know what? That's also the goal that I had for myself. It's what would have made my parents proud. It's what uh, made me feel special thinking about achieving that dream. Like I felt valuable if I could do that, actually. It's what I wanted, and it's what I felt like if I achieve this, this is how I'm actually living life. This is what it means to live. It's what I thought. And so I worked really hard in college. I played hard too, but I worked really hard as well. And everything was going according to plan until circumstances changed. And right before I was about to graduate the financial crisis happened. Where the stock market dropped about 50% within 18 months. The highest unemployment rates in the U.S. since the early 80s. And huge financial institutions began failing. Places that I had hoped that I could potentially start my career, places like Lehman Brothers and AIG, started to go bankrupt. Banks were going bankrupt. Why? Well, because circumstances had changed and their balance sheets were revealed. That's where they began to fail. See, many of you may know this, but a balance sheet, it's an account of what the company holds. And its assets column, it's what the company holds that makes the company valuable. And the liabilities column, it's the things that the company still owes that takes away from value. And when the economy started to go down and things started to turn south, these banks crumbled to the ground because it was revealed that their assets that they held on their books weren't actually assets at all. But in fact, they turned out to be liabilities. And in doing that, it gave them no way to stand when everything around them started to fall. So with all these banks failing and me being a scared college kid on the verge of graduating, it's like, something has to be done. (laughs) And the government obviously felt the same way. So they started to do these balance sheet stress tests to see whether or not the banks would have enough on their balance sheet if things started to go south. And so they would test these banks to see if what they had on their books as assets were actually assets. And they did that by simulating all these terrible scenarios. What if everything goes wrong? If everything goes south, would what the banks hold continue to be assets or would they actually prove to be liabilities? And the question that the government was testing for was can these banks stand regardless of certain circumstances? you know, that's how I started to feel in my own life. I started to see my future on Wall Street crumbling away, and I began to feel bankrupt. My life started crumbling away, and my joy was completely bankrupt because of that. And I was never able really to stand. I was just nervous and fretting and anxious the whole time. And so I felt like a little bank living my life. And you know what else? I think it's fair to say that every person in here as well, we live our lives as if we're a little bank, a little financial institution. Some of you are like, I don't make enough money to be a bank. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> but uh, there's a philosopher, Pascal, in his great wager. He says that in life, you have to wager. It's not up to you. You are already committed. He's saying that in life, you can't not bet your life on something. You can't not be headed somewhere. That's just a bold-faced lie. So that means we're all little banks with our balance sheets full of assets and liabilities, these pluses in our lives and these minuses in our lives that we try to accumulate. And I think we'll see that how we accumulate those things are based on our definition of life. It's based on our definition of life. What you think the meaning of life is, what the goal of your life is, will determine what you try to put in your assets column versus what you try to minimize on your liabilities column. And the question that our passage today in Philippians points us to is can your balance sheet withstand a stress test? Or will it cause you to fall? Do you have real assets in your life, real assets on your balance sheet, or are they actually liabilities? And ultimately, what kind of joy does that give you? What kind of joy does that give you? The entire book of Philippians. In it, Paul shows us just how his amazingly newfound balance sheet that's rooted in Christ is able to handle the greatest stress test that this world has ever thrown to someone. And it's because he's based his life on something that's not found in this world. I think it's such a great picture and an amazing book to look at and study because it's a great encouragement for us. As we come and we fill the pews on Sundays, but so often we live our lives very compartmentalized. The great encouragement that we have, we just sang some beautiful songs and some wonderful truth. But then we go out into the world on Monday through Saturday, and those things just fall away. And we forget that the truths that are reminded to us here have an impact on the way that we live our lives Monday through Saturday. And Paul says, if you really want to see how practical and powerful the Christian life is, all you have to do is look at what I'm saying here. Look at my own life as an encouragement. We often forget, Paul is such a, he's he's an amazing amazing writer of the New Testament. Um, But we often forget what kind of life that the Apostle Paul had. He was whipped with lashes, beaten with rods, he was stoned, and he was shipwrecked multiple times. And now, like I mentioned before, he's imprisoned in a jail cell, chained to a Praetorian guard 24 hours of the day. He's basically on house arrest. And not only that, he's, he's basically waiting his trial that could send him to his death for preaching the gospel. Think about the type of suffering that the Apostle Paul had gone through. Think about the trials that he had gone through. I don't even like it when there's a mosquito in my room. If there's no, if there's no AC, I get upset. <laughs> to fathom what he's going through as he's sitting in that jail cell, Physical torment, emotional beatings, injustice, fills his entire life. And that's enough to make any person not want to even live anymore. But it's in the midst of this jail cell that he's writing to the church in Philippi to update them on his condition and to encourage them. He's writing in a jail cell to encourage them and remind them that they can rejoice and that he himself is rejoicing. In chapter 1 in Philippians, he says, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. That word rejoice or that, the in, that word joy in the verbal or noun form, it's found 16 times in four short chapters in Philippians. It marks the entire book. It's all throughout it. And in this jail cell, he's showing that his life is filled with joy and that he is rejoicing in the midst of the most terrible things that this world could throw at him. And he's got a joy that's not temporary or fleeting or based on the weather in the Hamptons. That's because Paul's balance sheet is filled with real assets that's due to his definition of life, his goal of life. And it's based on, not on the gifts, but it's rooted in the giver of the gifts. And so Paul, in this, in this letter, as he's writing, he's writing to encourage us, not only just encourage us, but also, but also to challenge us to start to see what is our definition of life and can those things actually try to withstand a stress test that our world is bound to throw at it. He's asking, do you have a counterfeit joy, a temporary joy, or is it true, lasting, and substantive So how is it that Paul is able to have a life that can rejoice in all circumstances? Well, this morning I want to look at just two brief points um, to see how Paul is able to rejoice regardless of circumstances by looking at Paul's former definition of life and the joy that that gets him and Paul's new definition of life and the joy that corresponds. So Paul's old definition of life and the joy that it gives and Paul's new definition of life. So first, Paul's former definition of life. Well, we said that your definition of life is what will determine what you'll try to put in your assets column, in your plus column of your ledger. And if you think, so if you think that life is all about career or success or fame, that you're going to pour endless endless hours in the office, you're going to pour endless time working on your resume, building your network. Or if you think that life is all about family and relationships, and you're going to pour all of your energy and your time and your efforts and everything into your kids or into your your spouse or trying to find, find a spouse, maybe on Coffee Meets Bagel or something, working on your social media profile. That's where you're going to try to build up your assets column, and you're going to try to minimize on that liabilities column. Well, for Paul, who was a former Pharisee, he knew that, as a Pharisee, that life was all about righteousness before God. He understood that, but in order to attain that and build up his assets column, Paul was trying to follow the law and meet its standard, like he says, through his works and what he did in his flesh is what he calls it. And that's what Paul is warning us in this chapter, in verse two, when he says, "Watch out for those dogs! Watch out for those evildoers! Those mutilators of the flesh." Now, Paul was dealing with what uh, people called Judaizers, who were saying, yes, you know, if you want to be right before God, yes, you have to believe in what Jesus did for you. But also, you got to get circumcised. Yes, Jesus, but you also got to have this. It was a Jesus plus model. Jesus plus something that you also have to do in order to gain righteousness before God. And that was the same definition. That Paul had once in his former life, where he was trying to base his life on what that he on what he's accomplished. It's a view that has a confidence in the assets of your balance sheet through what you've achieved and what you've done, and that's this ridiculous credentialist that he lays out for us starting in verses uh, in verses four. He lays out his. I, I love this. He he's making an argument, and he he. Lays out his resume, something that New Yorkers like to do a lot, right? This is look at what I've done. Here's my here are my credentials. Here's my street cred, and that's what he's doing in verses four through six. He says, "If anyone else has thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless." He's saying, if you want to play this confidence in the flesh thing, I can play it better than you. I'm the best guy out there. I'm from the right people. I'm from the right place. I've done the right thing. You can't question my credentials. Paul's former definition of life was about attaining this righteousness through what he's done. And that's what he's filled his assets column with. He's showing you his former assets. So put it plainly, Paul was a... Paul is a super religious person, a super religious person who thinks that they can earn God's favor through what they've done. Going to church, tithing, volunteering at grace camp, doing all these different things. That is what he thought would also attain him favor before God. And that's the view that a lot of people outside of Christianity honestly has about what they think the Bible says. Because every other major religion says that you have to earn God's favor through what you do. That's earning a confidence, having confidence in your flesh and what you've done. And that was Paul's former definition of life as well. But you know what? What he's pointing us to in the entire book of Philippians. He's saying that if you do that, you will only have a temporary joy that can and will be lost. It's a counterfeit joy that you will have in your life. It's not the kind of joy that the Apostle Paul has and is exuding in the middle of a jail cell. That's not, what the, uh, that's not the kind of joy that you're going to have in your life. A counterfeit joy, here's a definition for you. It's, a, it's temporary elation and good feeling based on your circumstances. Temporary elation and good feeling based on your circumstances. It's a person whose life circumstances are going so well, and according to plan, especially when, you know, some of us are younger, we can feel good about the future, right? Right? But it's a, it's a kind of satisfaction that can't and won't endure. It's not sustainable over the long term. And it's completely useless in the face of suffering. Here are three types of counterfeit joy. I think, within these three types, everyone might be able to fit in this spectrum. Or you might at least know and understand what this is talking about. So the first type of counterfeit joy is anticipatory happiness. Anticipatory happiness. You can kind of sense what that means, right? That's being happy because you think you're on your way to the good life. You don't have it all now, but you're on your way. Some of us younger folks who, you know, like me in college, working and studying hard I could envision and imagine the life that I wanted. And I was on my way there. So that was me in in college wanting to be on Wall Street. I couldn't wait to get the little Blackberry clip and the shiny shoes. And, you know, that's just, I wanted that. Because that meant that I was on my way to it anticipatory happiness. But that, obviously, is completely dependent on something that you don't actually have yet. The second type of counterfeit joy is temporary satisfaction or joy that's ended by disillusionment. This is maybe for some of the folks who have lived life a little bit longer. You've actually gotten the job. You've actually gotten the relationships. You've actually gotten the family. You got the 1.2 kids with the picket fence and you know, you, you've got all that, and you, and it turns out, wait, this is it. This doesn't bring me the type of joy that I always thought that I wanted. It's lost because you're, dis, you're disillusioned. You're trying to get from it something that it actually couldn't give you. And the third type of counterfeit joy is temporary satisfaction or joy that's ended by suffering or difficulty. That's a happiness based almost completely on our circumstances. It's only when life is going well, when it's great and sunny out in the East End, that you feel happiness and joy. And it's based on the things that you have. That's a confidence in the flesh. When I think of our confidence these days and um, how it can be ended by suffering or, or just Our concept of confidence now in in our modern culture, I can't help but think of uh, one of my favorite uh, TV series that was also a book, that was also um, a movie called Friday Night Lights. Many of you may know it. If you haven't watched it on Netflix, it is fantastic. But Friday Night Lights, it's an account of um, the Permian Panthers of Odessa. It's the winningest high school football team in Texas history. And football in Texas is a huge deal. That's why it's called Friday Night Lights. And in the middle of it all was Booby Miles, star running back, Booby Miles, who was built like a linebacker, ran like a lion, and he had the confidence to prove it. I mean, in the movie, there's a great scene where he just walks through the weight room and he doesn't need to lift. He says, that's what y'all need to do. I don't need to do that. That's the kind of confidence he had. And then he would go out onto the field and crush it. And every college in the entire United States wanted him. Listen, in one game, it was in one game that Booby he gained 232 yards on eight carries. He scored touchdowns of 62 yards, 80 yards, and 67 yards. For perspective, a football field is just 100 yards. 232 yards on eight carries. I couldn't do that with no defense. <laughs> I would trip myself deliberately cuz I would get tired. But he was that kind of a player in the heart of Texas football. Just imagine it. The writer of the book, he says this. He says they weren't interested in him just because he was big and looked imposing in a football uniform. There were thousands of kids in Texas who fit that description. It was something else, more than just strength or speed, a kind of invincible fire that burned within him an unquenchable feeling that no one on that field, no one was as good as he was. Miles had the attitude. He thought he was the best. And then one day, he went for 15 yards, and it was only a scrimmage, but he wanted more. He always wanted more when he had the ball. Near the sidelines, he planted his left leg to stiff-arm a tackler, but the leg got caught in the artificial turf, and then someone fell on the side of it, And when he got up, he was limping and could barely put any pressure on it at all. Then the author captures this great moment by saying, But stripped of all of his accoutrements, reduced down to a gray shirt soaked with sweat, he had lost his persona. He looked like what he was, an 18-year-old kid that was scared to death. one injury, one scrimmage, and the great Booby Miles lost everything. He became a kid who lost all of his confidence because he had based his entire identity on circumstances. He had built up all of his assets column on something that could so easily be lost, and then it came crumbling down. When the stress test came, In Booby's life. And he had lost the thing that he had been living for. He couldn't wait to be an NFL star. He was talking about it the whole movie. He turned completely into a different person. Because his identity was tied to his definition of life. And it was a definition of life that couldn't stand when other things fell. Therefore, he had just temporary joy. Temporary joy and satisfaction in his life. And that's why it was so lost. It was lost so easily. It's because joy is linked to your definition of life. Joy is completely tied to what you think is the goal or the meaning of this life. So if you want to talk about joy, if you want this kind of joy, joyful life that can rejoice in all circumstances, you have to start here with this question of what are you living for? You have to start there. I think we have a way of not being able to answer questions like, what are you really living for? I think partly because it's so below our subconscious that we're just not aware of it, actually. Or maybe we're really afraid of what our hearts might answer with if someone could really see right through to our hearts to answer that question of what are you living for? And so I won't ask that question. But the question could be, what assets are you trying to pour into your life? Follow those assets up and it will give you your definition of life. And be honest, when you apply the stress test, will it stand? Will you be able to have a true joy or is it a counterfeit joy? So we go from this morbid view, this old definition of life, now to Paul's new definition of life and the kind of joy that gets him. And it's now completely different. Paul's new definition of life is completely different from his former definition of life that's rooted on the things that he's done in the flesh. To the point where after he lays out this immaculate resume, he calls these things garbage, utter trash. He likens all the things that he prized before now as complete refuse. A complete uh, disadvantage now to him. And that completely reversed his balance sheet. The things that he once considered as gain, he now says are a complete loss in his life. He's saying that his former assets weren't assets at all. They didn't help him earn righteousness before God. They didn't give him real joy. But they were actually liabilities that hurt his case of righteousness before God. He could never get there. And that radically changes his confidence And it changes his ability to rejoice and have a real and permanent joy. So what is it? What is this new definition of life that Paul has? Well, he lays it out for us in verse 7 where he says, But whatever were gains to me, I now consider a loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. I want to know Christ. To know Christ. Paul saying, I found the meaning of life. I found the true definition of life. The ultimate definition of life that's been given that will help him to stand no matter what. When everything else fails. And that is as simple as knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He says it's a knowing Jesus. That's it. Now, this isn't just an intellectual knowing, like I know Mark or I, or I know Michael Jordan or Barack Obama, right? It's not just a knowing intellectually, but it's a deep and personal relationship. In the Old Testament, when that word is used to know someone, it really meant really having a deep Um, a deep and personal relationship with the other person. And he's saying that he's finally understanding that life is about a relationship with the giver of the gifts, not just in the gifts themselves. The ultimate source of everything that is handed to us here in this world that is just a shadow of what God gives us. Simply put, his definition of life changed when he came to encounter the one who could actually give him life. Who could actually give him life. What do I mean by that? Well, let's think about Paul's life for a minute. He reminds us in verse 6 that as a part of his credentials, he says that as, a, as, as for zeal, he used to be a persecutor of the church. You know what that means? He used to kill Christians. He used to track them down. And he didn't want them to live anymore. He didn't want this idea and this faith to continue to spread. And so he was, he was the one who would track down Christians and really make them suffer. And that's what now he's saying um, is part of his credential. He's, in a sense, bragging about that. That that's what he used to think would make him righteous before God. That he would kill Christians. And he goes from that, from that former life to now, one who is writing a letter of encouragement out of love for his fellow Christians in the middle of a jail cell. How did that switch happen? Because he met the one on the Damascus Road when he's out persecuting Christians. He's out there zealously wanting to be righteous before God. Jesus meets him on the road and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He's saying, Saul, Saul, I love you. Come and meet with me. You've missed the point. It's not about what you're doing. And matter of fact, you're doing all the wrong things. Meet me. I'm the one who can love you and give you the life that you want. I forgive you. Come into my arms. That moment of meeting Jesus, who forgives him, who loves him, who shows him grace, regardless of what he's done, is what transforms him. And he's experienced God's love through Jesus Christ. That's why in Galatians 2.20, he says, Paul writing this, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Paul was transformed because the cross and what had happened on the cross became real to him. That love on the cross became, for him, a zealous persecutor of the church. And Christ did that because he knew that Paul could never, never know him through his own flesh, through his own resume. He could never get there. And that's what gave Paul a completely new definition of life. In meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus, he shows Paul just... All the things that he thought were assets that would give him life and give him joy were actually the things that could never give him life and take away from his joy and take away from his will to live. Listen, if you live for money or success, what happens when those things are taken away? There was a recent study released by the British Journal of Psychiatry that showed how suicide rates rose sharply during the Great uh, Great Recession about ten years ago. They rose sharply. And most of the people who were taking their lives were middle-aged men who had the most to lose. It's scary what can happen if the things that you're living for are taken away from you. It can take away from your will to live. Or live for your family and your relationships. What happens when they're taken away from you? But Paul... Here in Philippians, in the middle of a jail cell, he gains a greater will to live in the midst of terrible circumstances because his life is is built on something that's much more enduring, that can never be taken away because he's built his life on the giver and not on the gifts. And that's why he's so filled with joy in the midst of terrible circumstances in the jail cell. I mean, can we imagine what our lives could look like out in the world if you had this kind of a balance sheet in your life, if you had this kind of a confidence, if you had this kind of enduring joy that doesn't get taken away when somebody snuffs you at work or pushes you on the street or, you know, cuts you off in the parking lot. And and there's a lot of crazy driving out here, from what I've noticed. (laughs) And our joy can just so easily be taken away. But imagine what kind of joy and confidence that you could have if this was your balance sheet. And Paul, he's encouraging us through his own radical transformation that the point of life is to know the God who loved you to the point of death in order to give you life. And that's a life that can't ever be shaken and it's a life that can rejoice in any and every circumstance in this world. And he does it, he says, by giving us his perfect resume. You get Jesus' balance sheet. You get Jesus as your asset. We get that. We who have spent our lives building, building our lives and our resumes on everything but Him. He graciously gives that to us. Because He says on the cross, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. And He does it. Why? Well, because in our companion text in John 16, Jesus says that He's come to give us joy. He's come to make that joy complete in us. That there may be sorrow, but you as a Christian can have an eternal and everlasting joy. That's why I came. That's why joy marks the Christian life. That's why joy is the birthright of the Christian. And that's what Paul knew here in this jail cell. So, brothers and sisters, what are you building your life on? What assets do you think will help you gain life and give you joy? Let the cross become real in your life and see the giver of the gifts who suffered the loss of all things, even the throne of heaven, in order that he might gain you as his prized possession. When you do, if you base your life on that, you will have a beautiful life of joy that can endure the most painful things that this world can have, the most painful stress test that might come. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and praise you that your son has come to give us an infallible joy that can never be taken away. Lord, we know that this world is full of difficulty and circumstances that change, but help us to see and realize what we truly have in you. Help us, Lord, who may not know you to understand that this is a free gift given to them. That being in you is the definition of life that gives us true and lasting joy. Help us to live into that more and more. In Jesus' name, amen.